I'm Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, I am chatting with Kate Ross, Assistant General Counsel for Microsoft's gaming business. She is a general counselor for the engineering teams that make serious gaming happen. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. So we're going to get into uh, what I'm, I'm going to frame as a hallway-style hallway conversation. Uh, Kate and I recently had uh, an experience where we got to work on something together. Uh, but before we dive into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background to give folks a little bit of context on who you are and where you're coming from. You joined Microsoft about two years ago and brought some fantastic experiences with you. Can you can you give us a little bit of uh, your background? What, what where do you where are you coming from? Sure. Well, you know anybody who is worth their salt from Chicago will tell you first and foremost about themselves that they're from Chicago. So there you have it. I am a Chicago girl, um, born and bred, but I found myself here in Seattle about uh, 19 years ago to join a little startup called Amazon. Um, and that was after practicing law for a couple of years at an IP boutique um, in the city of Chicago. Um, I was I was out here, I think I might have been the 15th lawyer that they had hired. Um, and, and definitely at that time, the most junior lawyer. So I really cut my teeth on the, the, the business of law and being in-house um, at Amazon in a time of great change. Um, in that business. And it was quite a lot of fun. It was a time when Amazon was going through layoffs and really questioning its own business model. Um, yes, if you can even believe it. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, I, guess, I guess they found the right side of history on that one. That's right. Jeff Bezos was still driving the Honda every day. Um, after that job, I, I decided to um, do something a little bit different and go into gaming. I'd always been a, a, a gamer my whole life. I enjoyed playing Dungeons and Dragons as a teenager, and so I had the opportunity to be the general counsel of Wizards of the Coast, a subsidiary of Hasbro, um, which was based in Renton, Washington, and I did that for about 10 years um, and helped uh, that business grow both Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering are juggernauts um, of the the online and offline gaming world. Um, and so that's where I really cut my teeth in gaming. I decided to take a flyer and go to a little startup called Redfin after that. Um, also had an opportunity to work with some of the, the local Seattle billionaires trying to make the world better. Um, and then I decided to come back and be in gaming and take a job at Xbox. So that is how I have come to you today. That is a pretty amazing <laughs> series of experiences that you've strung together. And and I will also, uh, also offer that um, I knew that I was going to really like Kate when I went into her office one day and I saw a custom was it a dwarven hammer? No. It's a rod of resurrection. Rod of resurrection. So, That's right. So I will I will now uh, proudly announce my, my geekiness that I, I'm a Dungeons and Dragons advanced D&D second edition person. <laughs> like I, I go way back. Uh, my go. my wife mocks me mercilessly. I have a, a scarf that has a many sided die on it and she's just like I, I don't want to be seen with you. But when I, I saw this and it was it, also I think it was like engraved like it had some custom work on it. I have a very special artifact. The rod of resurrection Resurrection, which has a an inscription, uh, a haiku about me, um, etched into the side in Dwarvish. See, <laughs> not many people can say that. That's that's how I knew. I'm like this. This is one of my people. I will uh, I will say it opens a lot of doors. <laughs> and apparently resurrects. People. It resurrects that's, people from uh, the dead too. That, that's sure. that's impressive. I, and so I'm curious, what what caused you to become a lawyer? Like what what brought you to this game? <laughs> Uh, well, I always was really intrigued with the law, but I didn't know very much about it. No one in my family was, uh, you know, a lawyer or in law enforcement or had anything to do with the legal profession. Um, I enjoyed debate and speech in high school and college, and I thought, well, this could be something that, you know, I might be good at. Before I decided to go to law school, though, I decided to get some practice um, in the law by being a homicide investigator in Washington, D.C. Now, 
most people, when they say, I want to learn more about the law, don't quite go to that extreme. But that's what I decided to do. And I'm, I'm really happy that I had that experience. I learned so many skills um, that I can really point to today um, as being very formative uh, from, from that experience, just in terms of working with a lot of different people, really learning how to listen, um, and, and uh, putting yourself out there in environments that you have never experienced before. Um, that experience helped me understand that perhaps criminal law is not going to be my path, but I did go to law school and end up being sort of a, an IP attorney um, with, a, with a passion for you know, seeing what else I could do on the side. And so I've always been fortunate enough to have jobs where I, I could volunteer and do other kinds of activities. I'm guessing it's a different type of precision questioning that's involved when you're a homicide investigator. Very different. Very yeah. different. Yep. But it, but you also are highlighting something that I find really interesting about our practice, which is you end up dealing with a very narrow set of clients. And so one of the things that I delight in is having a pro bono practice that kind of gets me out of our bubble a little bit. That's exactly right. You can, you know, the law is what you make of it. It can be as narrow or as broad as you want it to be. And the one thing that I feel particularly fortunate about being at Microsoft is just how much opportunity there really is. My day job might be about a platform and about making sure that the platform works and all of our engineers are you know, doing the right things with respect to open source uh, or intellectual property. But the, there's a whole other world out there that is sometimes very, very relevant to my practice. Online safety, um, making sure kids are safe online, digital civility, teaching people about the tools that are available on platforms to help themselves. Um, or it can be something that's completely outside of my field and something that I have to really learn. Um, and that is, it, those opportunities are here, and that's a, a real, a real gift. So I think that's a really nice segue into uh, the hallway conversation I wanted to have because <laughs> there is this really interesting thing that happens here uh, called the mid-year question, and uh, we were on the same uh, mid-year question team this year, and yes. it it was a total delight for me. And one of the things that I love about Mid-Year Question is it does bring people from different parts of the department uh, from di with who have different disciplines, and it puts us on a project where we're on basically a sprint to go get something done. And it was just a wonderful experience to just kind of get to see you operate and see you work. Some people really don't like group projects. You know, you think about sort of the worst case scenario of a group project where one person's sort of doing the heavy lifting and everybody else maybe shows up marginally. Well, that's the opposite of the experience we had. And I, I think that that's a testament to the great group of people that were brought together who were really invested. But also the question we had, which was just so intriguing. That's true. So I'm going to let me take a couple minutes and lay out kind of what mid-year question yeah. is, how it fits into the larger uh, strategic uh, strategic goal-setting process for, for CELA. So Microsoft's Corporate External and Legal Affairs, also known as CELA, we, we will refer to ourselves as CELA probably going forward, it has a rhythm of business that has a very intentional strategic goal-setting process. And uh, the starting place for that uh, is usually uh, in the late fall, our uh, president and chief legal officer, Brad Smith, his office will solicit questions from around the department. And the idea is to get forward-looking questions that should inform you know, where our business is going, issues we should be caring about, things like that. Uh, he uh, goes off with his team and they put together a list of, I think this year it was 20 or 20, maybe 21 questions. And these they cover all kinds of interesting topics. Uh, and we'll get into the specifics of our topic in a bit, but it, they can have uh, you know relevance for diversity, philanthropy, uh, human rights, like it, it, commercial issues, IP issues. They, they can go anywhere and everywhere. And after uh, the, the holiday, uh, vacation break 
teams are formed with uh, usually six people, uh, again, constructed from, from folks from all over the department, and one or two executive sponsors, so a senior uh, leader uh, from the department. And they're given a question and about three weeks to go research it. And what they, the, the, so the, the team must go off, research the question, produce a five-page memo that answers the question, and then there is this process uh, of, of effectively a, a review in front of much of the department uh, where you come forward and you present 15 minutes of kind of uninterrupted content uh, to the senior leadership team and the rest of the folks, and then there's about an hour of discussion. After so, so my running joke is uh, mid-year question is a combination of uh, I think science fair, book report, Senate hearing. It's about uh, right. Yeah, it's about right. <laughs> so the the things that are learned in that question process are then taken back by the senior leadership team and they feed into what is the, the strategic prioritization pro uh, process for the department, which results in specific strategic priorities and also resourcing uh, kind of reallocations to try to focus on the things that we think are very future focused and, and matter the most. Does that pick up? Uh, yeah, I think that that's about right. Sometimes there are some pet questions. Yes. Um, and sometimes we see a little bit of overlap from years prior. Um, but that just kind of lends to the richness because you actually have the opportunity to build off of things past and really um, get a sense of, of longevity, of direction true. that the, the, the department has gone in. I think we also saw some uh, intersection uh, within our year. I think, uh, so we're, we were question 19. We were. And I think question 18 had some strong intersectionality. And so that was fun to see. Yes, and we were smart enough to go and watch their presentation first. <laughs> before the next day. So I'm curious, so th this was, I believe, your second mid-year question? That's right. So I, I, I've done a, a, a couple more than you, and I will remark that you were a very strong leader uh, for our team in that what you did was you made sure that everybody was heard, but you also kept forward progress always happening. And there's a kind of a deft uh, touch and an art to doing that because it is often the case that progress tends to be uh, a little bit, uh, it, many people think of the way, the best way to make progress is a bit exclusionary. And I'm curious, how, how, did, how do you think about that? What, was, what, are, what are you trying to accomplish? What, what drove your, your behaviors that helped catalyze so much of our collaboration? Well, first of all, thank you. I, I do think that we had the benefit of having really um, engaged teammates who all took leadership roles um, at different times doing different, different activities. One of the benefits of um, of our team was that we had a, a couple of us um, all in the same time zone. And so I think just acknowledging the fact that those of us who were in the same time zone perhaps needed to take a little bit stronger um, propelling or than others was uh, perhaps not explicitly stated, but something that did end up helping our team sort of gel. And then Further on that, recognizing that each person, particularly those who were um, not in the same time zone, not in the same building, were going to need to be given specific roles or specific tasks so that they could work asynchronously um, at times, I think also was an insight we had fairly early on and we were able to organize around that. But look, we had three weeks to uh, decide how we were going to approach our topic, to research our topic, to write up a document, to gather feedback, and then ultimately to present it. So sometimes having those deadlines does cause you to have the forward momentum you need when you just need to get something done. True, though I will remark that there have been other mid-year question experiences that I have had where <laughs> It was a it was a lot more diagonal motion uh, where yes, I I guess there was some forward progress happening, <laughs> but it felt mostly like uh, like side to side at the moment. This is why people hate group projects, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th it's interesting though because the, one of the things I find interesting about your observation there is nobody told you to go do that, right? And so one of the things that is kind of wacky about mid-year question, at least nominally, is yes, there are these uh, executive sponsors. But it's a little bit of a holacracy in as much as 
it is it, it is I've never had an experience where there was like an appointment process like you will do this you will do that but I've also had the problem where because there was no appointment process nothing happened and so one of the things I observed is you were quite adept at like observing like there is a need I will fill this need and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on it. well you know one thing that I like to do in my own practice and also having sort of managed people for quite a long time in my career is to try to identify where people are at, um, not just on a, a, you know, a total basis, but on a day-to-day basis. People's needs and wants may change over time. We may have, a, in, a, in a group project setting with a very strong time limit, you may find that some, some folks have more energy to put towards research, more energy to put towards writing, more energy on the phone. Um, and that may even vary within the days that, you, that you're working, just because of their own needs or, or issues. So one thing that I like to do is listen really hard at the very beginning and the outset about what people are saying that they can contribute. Oftentimes, you'll find the tells right there. We actually had a few of our early meetings where people were saying, I want to research this or I think this. And they gave me some pointers as to how we might be able to utilize them best. Um, Sometimes just giving people the, the opportunity and giving them a suggestion will lead them in a path where they can, they can say yes, which is always what you want to get to. What will people say? So, I mean, it, it sounds kind of obvious when you say it like yeah. that, but uh, actually listening to people and what <laughs> <laughs> what they would like to do and how they would like to contribute, um, I, I, it seems really obvious, but it is often the case that I think we observe that that's not how it goes down. It really is more of a... I have a pre <laughs> a predisposed view of what I think you should be doing and I'm going to pretend to listen but really I'm just going to try to, to get you to do this thing that I've already made my mind up on I think that's true I think that that's I think that's human nature um, can I tell you what I heard from you please two things I heard from you first you had said that you did a lot of the writing for your one of your mid-year questions or perhaps all of your mid-year questions. But I got the sense that you had taken the laboring or maybe a few too many times and you were hoping that you could be of use in a different way. And then the second thing that I heard from you was that you really wanted to be a person who could teach us the rest of us how to use some of the, uh, the tools that we had available to us um, in a way that would not only help our project, but would help us evangelize many of the um, uh, many of the conclusions that we were already going to be coming to, and that we were going to be presenting. And so, you, what I heard from you was, we need to leverage these opportunities with Jason, and also not have him write <laughs> the document. <laughs> Well, thank you for honoring my request because uh, it made it a fantastic experience for me. And uh, but I, I, I will. I, I suspect that. Um, so it is. I'm impressed that you have a memory of. Oh, yeah. Of this is what you said, and this is that. Like that is a very powerful thing to actually hear people internalize what they're saying and then execute on it. Like That's really interesting. Well, you know, we did a lot of research as a group, as you know, um, about uh, how people how people learn and what the barriers are to learning. One of the, and we should talk a little bit about our question because that is a, that is a, a something that is a little bit um, off kilter. So our question was really around uh, you know the workforce of the future, and what will the legal profession and the SELA department need to do to support the workforce of the future? Now, a lot has been written about what skills people will need in the future, people outside of the legal profession and the legal affairs and, and um, government affairs professions. But the question as we read it was really, how do we need to change? What do we need to do to get ready? And what was so interesting about that is that we could 
take a very concrete and very literal approach. Um, these are the skills Sila will need. And in fact, that was how I initially read the question. Um, but actually, if you took it up a few levels, what you realized was we need to address some of the fundamental issues um, that make it hard for us to change. What are those things that are preventing us from being prepared? And some of the research that we uh, uncovered was so valuable and so interesting and also slightly frightening to me personally as a lawyer because it really talked about um, some of the personality traits of, of lawyers and why it's hard for them to work in groups, to work in team settings, um, to not attack ideas. We're actually taught in law school how to think critically, how to think like a lawyer. Thinking like a lawyer means that you're gonna attack every idea as it's coming out of people's mouths. And that is kind of the opposite of listening and internalizing and building. Um, so I have been thinking about this and, and chewing on this for weeks, um, just in my own practice. And I think listening is kind of one of those building blocks that um, we is so obvious and we just don't do as a profession. I, I could not agree more wholeheartedly in as much as our profession starts off by selecting for people who have these traits, right? Who love autonomy, who you know, if are <laughs> are not uh, innately uh, strong socializers, typically <laughs> high degree of skepticism, um, you know, a bit brittle. Uh, if if we're really honest about it, and there's sure. all all these uh, traits and features, so we we select in these traits. And then we breed them to be even stronger through the training process, right. which involves, you know, this self-directed kind of process where you don't really work in teams. Um, you engage in zealous advocacy, which causes you to always seek weakness in the other arguments That's and right. go after it initially. <laughs> and so then it's funny because we get all this training and then we're dropped into these scenarios where we're supposed to work together and then we unleash our skills on each other. and It's not good. Lawyers are like the worst brainstormers ever <laughs> because they're just not open, right? I mean, that is exactly the opposite of all of the training that we get. We are taught how to receive information and then break it down. And that is when we when we are asked to think about how we're going to become more flexible, um, how we're going to become better learners, how we're going to develop skills. It's sort of the opposite of all of the training that we've received. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. You've identified. So if I back up a little yeah. bit, you observe that there is a meta problem that basically informs the larger problem, yes. which is so if we take the question at a, at a, on a literal basis and if, I, if we go back and I'll, I'll read the specific question because I pulled it up as the workforce faces the need to gain new skills to keep up to date with the changing requirements of their jobs. What does that mean for us in SELA? How do we see the future of our work and how should we be prepared for it? And the, the more direct uh, answer might be a, a specific series of skills. Yep. Like, oh, this is the specific thing that you need. But what you observed, and I, I agree with, is that what we actually need is to think systemically and say, like, right. what are the conditions uh, that we would create that have behaviors that are reinforcing of actually causing people to constantly reskill, to be able to adapt, to be able to work together more effectively. And I think you're right that and I, I'm glad that we ended up where we did because I think it ends up with a more holistic view on both the problem and the solution. Because the solution is not send people to a class for these like five things. That doesn't get us there, does it? No, absolutely not. And in fact, I mean, even within Microsoft, even within Sela, we have so much learning opportunity. We have so many classes and podcasts and you know everything that is available at your fingertips to learn from um, is it really the question of oh do I have enough time well no it's a it's a much much broader question first of all we have maybe too much it's hard to even decipher and determine which you know where you start what actual skill do you need and how do you go get it the second thing is we're not necessarily incentivized to spend all of our time skilling up. 
um, if we're doing really well in our job and we're providing a lot of value and, and having a lot of impact, um, you know, one might say, well, I'm skilled enough. What, what is this gonna, what is this new skill that I'm gonna learn that really gonna add to my practice, to my clients um, today? So it's, it's a much harder nut to crack than one might think because of course everybody wants to go learn new skills. I mean, I wanna be a better chef, right? Like I think my family would really appreciate it, but it, there's sort of a marginal return. How much more time am I gonna spend? Um, you know, practicing with different spices. This is where I think our skepticism is really problematic for That's us right. because it's so easy to say like, well, I could go learn that thing, but it's speculative, like it, the value is speculative. And so should I continue to explore new things that might have value or should I just exploit what I've already created and really create the most, get the most value from that as I can, which then bleeds into why doesn't innovation happen? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. And if, you know, my epiphany um, in this process was taking the the answer to the question outside of specific skills. I I don't necessarily need to double down on learning, you know, every trick of of Excel. Maybe that's not going to be what is the most important thing, but what I do need to do is to have a more flexible mindset, to have the, you know, the so-called growth mindset. That in itself is a skill that I need to practice. Um, you know, full disclosure, I am part of the Generation X. And so we are sort of, you know, as a generation, you know, prone to criticism and self-doubt. <laughs> but I do look at many of my millennial colleagues um, and, and I turn to them for inspiration. I think on the whole, they they sort of have grown up in a, in a as digital natives. They understand how to collaborate. They understand how to use tools, and they're much more comfortable learning um, because that is something that they have done from a very early age in a way that perhaps our generation didn't. So I, I really am so inspired just to even be able to say, what does it look like in this situation or that situation to have a growth mindset to be flexible? I so you you bring up something that I. I agree with. So I too am of the Generation X. Uh, <laughs> I think we were the lost generation, as, uh, yes. as many have described us. And there is something I observe that I think that builds on what you're talking about, which is a lot of our millennial colleagues are just less afraid yes. of of not seeming like the expert. That's right. And so the net result of that is they will get more instruction because they will go to somebody and say, I don't know, I don't understand. Can you show me? Can you help me? Can you explain to me? The I will say the thing that drives many of us Xers a little bit nuts from that is it often feels like there is not enough effort put into self-investment before <laughs> questions are lobbed at us. It's the chicken or egg. <laughs> right. And so, what, you know, I'm not sure what the, I don't know if, if anybody's right or wrong in this, but I I would say that we can probably trend a little bit more to the uh, millennial side of things from where we are. I think that will be very health, helpful and healthy because, you know, the more people who are willing to put out, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to try. Can anybody help me? That creates more safety, more room for the rest of us to also not pretend like we know everything because we have so much to learn. That's that's right. And in fact, just the act of saying I don't know, but I want to know, is is a is a step forward. It's brave, um, and it's something that we need practice on. It's something we all need to practice. And once you practice it, once you model it you develop a culture of safety. And that's something that we talked a lot about in our in our team of having the psychological safety to to work together as a as a functioning team. Teams develop their own cultures um, and being able to show your vulnerabilities, um, let your teammates know when you when you don't know something and allow someone else to pick up the ball really does make a difference in the overall output. So you you use the psychological safety word. Let's go there. So yeah. 
We ended up reading, uh, I think it was the Project Aristotle uh, research from Google. Yes. And the, the, the short version of it is the most highly correlated trait of high-performing teams is psychological safety. And so I am curious if you have any observations about our mid-year question experience where you saw where psychological safety, and I'm, no, we don't need any specifics, but right. just some observations on how it was either grown or how it was harmed. Well, I think uh, very early on, um, a very wise participant named Jason <laughs> suggested to the team that uh, we we acknowledged the fact that we were going to be um, honest with each other and that sometimes that might feel critical, but that we owed it to each other to do that. And I think that, you know, given that we were all from very different backgrounds, um, very different organizations, not all of us were lawyers, we all have different jobs, um, and, and many of us had never met each other before, it was important to just say it because we could refer back to it. And in fact, we did refer back to it a few times. Um, we never, you know, nothing ever came to fisticuffs or anything like that. You know, there wasn't anything super controversial about where, uh, where we went with our research. But I think that just making the statement up front that this is how we're going to operate and we're going to be honest and we expect honesty and sometimes that isn't gonna feel okay was a really important step to saying, we directionally want to develop psychologically psychological safety. Then, following on that, we had teammates who modeled it, who acknowledged their uh, their weaknesses, acknowledged when they didn't understand something, um, engaged in healthy dialogue and disagreement. Um, in front of all of us and allowed us to sort of witness how, how they organized themselves around that. That was really helpful, I found. Um, so, you know, I think it's a process. I don't think that you can sort of just drop in and have a culture overnight. I think it takes everyone's willingness to um, see it through and good intent. So there's a couple things there that I want to I wanna go back to. Sure. Uh, so one is the explicit statement of operating principles up front. Yeah. I will observe that when I was in private practice, we never did that. Like I caught a moving train <laughs> <laughs> and what you, the way that tra culture was transmitted was always through action and there was never any assertion of what we actually wanted the, our culture to be. It was always this kind of organic thing that you had to infer and, and the net result of that was it mostly didn't change. It was sticky and I felt like I was inheriting somebody else's shoes, right? And oh, as much yeah. as like at some point in time in memoriam, it was established that this is how we will operate and it just kind of continued. And I always found it, I, in retrospect, I find it intriguing that there was less what feels like intentionality into the culture that we would create. And I'm curious if you've had, had any experiences like that. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I've had, as you, as you noted at the outset, quite a few different jobs. And every organization has its own culture. Every team has its own culture. And certainly within Microsoft, we have plenty, plenty, plenty of um, very different cultures operating, oftentimes you know, within a few um, doors of each other. So the one thing that I have noticed is that the most high-functioning uh, teams have a culture where um, there is a humility among its leadership. And when leaders are willing to say that they don't know everything, when leaders are willing to pass the baton of leadership around, and when leaders are willing to celebrate um, everyone's participation, I think you really can very intentionally change the culture. We had a situation in our own team where we had to be very intentional about making sure different participants were able to fully participate, partly because of accessibility reasons, partly because of time zones, um, and, and partly because of very different experiences in terms of, you know, what our jobs are. And it was something that I think each one of us was really careful 
um, and thoughtful about. To me, that's leadership, and I think all of us participated in that. So what you're describing there sounds an awful lot like inclusion. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes, that's a word. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, so I think one of the, the things that is very special about the mid-year question process is because of the way, and there's a lot of thought put into the composition of the teams, because of the way they're composed, it does force you to figure out how to work with people who have different skill sets, different places coming from different backgrounds, different perspectives. And that's something that we don't always get in our day jobs because you end up getting on this kind of treadmill of sameness. And so it it is a perfect opportunity to really, I think, investigate and play with those skills that you may not get in your day job. Oh, I think that's right. I I don't know that of anybody we work with um, here in SELA who doesn't have a V team, you know, in their background, in their life that they're working on daily. So we have to work with teams. We have to work with people who have different needs and objectives than we do. And you know, perhaps we have a very clear role in those V teams, um, those virtual teams, but perhaps we don't. I think that this process of just going through our own mid-year question and realizing that the key is having flexibility, having a growth mindset and developing psychological safety. I wish that all, I wish all of our colleagues could have been in our question just to experience that because I know that I'm changed. I know that that is perhaps one of the most important things that I want to bring to every virtual team I work in going forward. Um, And it's not that hard. There are a few very simple things that you can do just by modeling to, to bring that into the culture. So there's something else that you keyed in on that I think for many people feels like it's in it's it's in opposition to psychological safety, <laughs> which is yeah. we basically disagreed but committed. Yes. And one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy about the culture of our our day job is it is very Pacific Northwest. Um, <laughs> it's you know it's it's often very subtle and it's indirect and you, you like get, like there's a lot of conversations that happen like outside of the conversation, and it is very challenging to operate in that because in many instances you you don't always know where you stand. Like it's and it's very polite, yes. but it's often not fully authentic. And one of the things that I really appreciated was it felt like we got to the place of truth pretty quickly in our work. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and, and like how, how, how did we get there? I'm just curious. I will, not to bash on this place that I live and I love, but I don't think we had any Pacific Northwesterners <laughs> on our team. I think none of us was native. That might be it. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that to a person on our team, um, everyone was extremely authentic and very honest about who they were and what they did. I, I can't, you know, in retrospect and not having worked with any of these folks before, I, I can't think of a time I've had a more sort of pleasurable, authentic experience than working with this group who all were just themselves. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, that was an extreme. We weren't necessarily the most polite group. <laughs> my my very plain spoken Midwesternness definitely came through because we had to get things done. Um, but I, I do believe that at least it was okay to be that way. And we made it okay to be that way. And it, for me, it felt like it, it went back to something else that you said, which was, we were judging each other's intent. That's right. Right. That's and, right. And so sometimes we were hard on the issues, but we were tried to be easy on the people. That's exactly right. One of the things that came out in the presentation we ended up giving um, was that within the law profession, the legal department, oftentimes we want things to be very pretty when it, and packaged when it comes out. We don't want to show. Our work. We don't want to show the messiness and the disagreement and the flaws. And so oftentimes um, we lose something 
and and we lose we lose an opportunity above all to bring people into our process because they only see the end result and they only see what's pretty and they assume that they can never get there and that's just that's not true it's just not true and we had a wonderful opportunity to say that to our leader <laughs> to his face in the room which was great it, it, it was it was a fun I, I enjoy the conversation thoroughly um, <laughs> well we're both still here so yeah. that's okay <laughs> well so that's one of those uh, one of those really funny things um, it, it, so especially the first time through Meteor Question yes. I think there's a lot of I don't know uh, just so many unknowns like if I screw something up like is this going to harm my career right. yes. you know like if I say the wrong thing like what happens like what are what are the risks and having I've now been at Microsoft 8 years and I observe that I, I've seen some like greatest hits I've seen some greatest misses and I, it, as best I can tell um, it does like people have space for this is an experimentation platform you know I think as long as you're not unkind that's right <laughs> it'll be okay that's right well and and frankly I mean the mid-year question process is intended to give you that experimentation platform that's not to say that every every place you go and every form format you're in like should be that experimentation process that's not the case. I mean, I, I definitely have had many uh, many folks I've worked with over over the years kind of watch them flame out because they they didn't read the room, you know. And you, you have to be able to do that. I think um, you develop that sense with with time and uh, and experience. Um, but the mid year question process is not the place to be shy. It's the it's the opportunity. To have a conversation with the leaders in our company, and that's a, a really rare gift. It is. It's uh, and so. The other thing I will uh, I will note is that we actually got some disagreement, which was wonderful because you know. So what I've observed in prior years that in an effort to, I think, be uh, gentle. Some of the senior leaders have basically said like, okay, okay, okay. And I, there were a couple of things that we uh, put in our paper where people were openly skeptical and <laughs> I was delighted. Like it was, because I- were delighted. I was. were not happy. No. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, but, but the, the, I think it is important for people to see that these senior leaders can disagree with something. That's right. And that's not fatal. Absolutely. If, if they're going to disagree, they should just, I mean, I actually think that it would be really unfortunate if they didn't disagree or they didn't have questions about something that was presented in the format of the mid-year question, because that would mean that we weren't really adding anything to the conversation. And I think the disagreement in our mid-year question was around um, a statement that we made that we, we debated hotly, but we decided ultimately we were gonna go for it. And we said that there should be a mandate around education, around culture, around, we should be mandating the use of the, the tools that we have um, to, for collaboration, basic things. The use of the word mandate was a very controversial topic for the team, and, and I, I get why. I understand. It's very hard to mandate anything to 1,500 people, let alone 1,500 people who really, really prefer autonomy. <laughs> <laughs> but it really did spark a conversation about how do you incentivize people? How do you reward them? How do you develop a cultural norm where you know it's not okay to be an outlier. Where it's not okay to, to you know, be the only person who's not using the tool. It sounds a lot like a mandate to me when you start to put rewards behind it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's true, and it, it, I, for me, it was a micro examination of our culture because yes. we are so consensus driven here. And people don't like telling other people what to do. Like we will often, uh, we'll we'll ask questions like, "Could you? Would you? Have you considered?" Which, in many ways, results in a lot of civility. Yes. But it also makes getting to the truth of things challenging, 
it makes accountability harder. Yes. And it, in many ways, I think it slows some things down that could be faster. The upside is, I think we do have a very collegial and civilized culture. Uh, but I also subscribe to the theory that you can have collegiality, you can have civility, and you can have like directness and truth because our team had that. Like, I think we had all of those features and we were stronger because of it. I think that's right. I also believe that you can have a social contract and a social contract really is about consideration, right? There are things that you need to do in order to participate um, in society, right? And so in a culture, I think that's the same, the same thing. If you want to achieve the benefits, you're going to have to perhaps give up some of your rugged individualism of not using, you know, the basic tools that we offer to you. <laughs> it is, uh, I feel like we're airing some real dirty laundry, yeah, well, but it's true. You know, it's true. Like what, it's, so. it's now my pet peeve. I wasn't a, a huge user of Microsoft Teams before this, um, before this mid-year question. And Jason, your, your efforts to teach us all of the tricks um, and our, our absolute insistence on using the tool has made me a hardcore evangelist in my own team um, to the point where I don't have a lot of patience for people who are unwilling to try. <laughs> so, but it's one of these situations where you have to see it to yeah, believe it. That's right? right. That's right. And just trial and error and just giving people that gentle nudge of, hey, maybe this could be put on Teams. How about you do it here? Let me help you mm -hmm. can really make a difference. I, so that is what I observe is the catalyst for change that actually does work here. Yes. When somebody who you trust says, can you join me there? I will help you. This is not a scary thing. We're going to make the learning process fun and it's, it's the ramp is not going to be steep. When people do that, other people are willing to go along for the ride. The challenge is, of course, does it scale? Right. Because you and, and the answer is maybe, but I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it might scale if you have the right incentive structure, mm -hmm. if if you have enough of those evangelists in different groups and if you model the behavior. So if you have senior leadership who are all agreeing that they are going to try this and they are going to model the behavior, it will flow down. So I will say that your boss, Linda Norman, is quite exceptional at being about it. Yes, yes she is. And she's very intentional, mm -hmm. very intentional. And I, I really appreciate that because I think that that gives all of us the reason to go and try mm -hmm. and seek help and offer help when we can. Yeah, no, I think that the, the culture that you guys have is in gaming is kind of special. Um, and I think that the tone from the top is very instructive of, of what happens. So uh, also Linda's just hilarious. Like she's, she is, she's a hoot. Um, she, yes, yes, I think that is the technical term. Yeah, I mean, and, and, but I think that's part of, that's part of what is special that's part, I think that's part of the recipe because, so Linda will be very direct with you when it's time to be direct, but she also keeps it light so that when we're just kind of in normal operating mode, I think people feel comfortable to put ideas out there, to move fast, make decisions, experiment, learn, try. And I think that's, part of that is catalyzed just by how she engages with people on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's exactly right. Um, Linda Norman, who is my boss in gaming um, and, and is the head of CELA for gaming, is she's an exceptional leader. And, you know, she leads with a lot of head and a lot of heart. And I think that that is very instructive for our team. Look, gaming, we're just a bunch of misfits, right? And our <laughs> clients are a bunch of misfits. And you can, it, there is a lot of fun. And so you can't take the fun out of it. And I think Linda is exceptional at helping us remember that, you know, at the end of the day, we're providing delight to millions of people. And that's, that's a, it's a great thing to come to work for. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't, 
I don't know that I can. That's a pretty strong finish. Uh, I, I, I was, I was not the microphone. Yeah, I was, I was, I was thinking about what was next, but I, I don't know. Like, I mean, when you when you put it like that, that when you get to come to work and have delight, that's that's special. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, not only do do I get to work on products that my kids know all about and I can talk to intelligently and of course talk to their friends. Um, but I can help tons and tons of people at the same time, navigate the waters online, help my clients uh, you know, figure out how to communicate better. Um, I, can, I can actually affect change for millions of people with the products that we know are in their living rooms. Mm-hmm. It's a great feeling to have this much scale. And I suspect that your impact, your influence, your effectiveness is potentiated and facilitated because you bring a slightly different skill set to how you operate your practice. The things you've been talking about over the last 45 minutes, I suspect make you a very effective counselor and make your clients delight in, in receiving your guidance, even when it may not be things they, they specifically want to hear because you, I'm sure they feel heard. I have no doubt that they believe that you are absolutely in their corner, that you are an advocate, but that you are, when you offer guidance that they may not want to hear, it is reasoned, it is thoughtful, and it, it brings in the perspectives that they're not always seeing, but that you can, and that you can translate that back to them. And I suspect that your clients are probably have very high satisfaction with uh, who they have as their counselor. Well, I will say that I have a rod of resurrection. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically you can take risk because... Uh, That's you, right. You can I can always be resurrected. It's fine. Wow. Uh, okay. That, I, I think we should leave it there. Right. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for making time to chat. This has been fantastic. And I, and I just do want to reiterate that it was one of my great delights of, of I was going to say, the year is still pretty young, but like it, it it's was early. It's early, but it was one of my great delights to get to work with you on Meteor Question. And I learned a ton and it was fun and it was a delight. And I, I just thank you for making the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I hope that we have a chance to play some games together. Oh, definitely. Okay.